Well, welcome to the Hills, to everybody who's joining us live at one of our three campuses, or if you are with us online, thanks for uh, worshiping from home or wherever you are streaming from. I'm so glad you're with us. My name's Taylor. I'm one of the teaching ministers, and it's my honor to kick off this new series, Second Guessing Jesus. I've got, uh, I got my notes up here. I've got a, a Bible. It's not my normal preaching Bible, but uh, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1, Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, as This whole series for us will be in Mark's gospel. Now, uh, let me tell you the story behind behind this particular Bible. So I have uh, have a four-year-old son named Finn and a one-year-old daughter named Imogen. And I'll let you guess uh, which one of them received this as a gift uh, at their birth. Um, But it was my daughter. But my son, Finn, decided as the big brother, he was going to claim it as his own. And over the last uh, few weeks, starting around the Christmas holiday, uh, Finn decided this was no longer his sister's. He's a jealous big brother. And so he decided this is his Bible now. And he was carrying it around and and all through the Christmas holiday and even in these last several weeks. And so one night, a couple weeks after Christmas, I I come in to check on him that he's asleep and I find him in his room and he is sitting up and he's got the Bible open. And I said, buddy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just reading the Bible. And as a dad, I was so proud. And then as a preacher dad, I'm like, seize the teachable moment. So I, I walk up to him and I said, buddy, can, uh, can I read you something that's in the Bible? And he nods and hands this to me. And I, I turn to the gospel of John and I just read a couple verses at the beginning of that gospel talking about Jesus as the light of all mankind and that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And I look up thinking we're going to have this great connection moment and his brow is furrowed and he's looking at me and then he goes, hmm, my turn. He grabs the Bible back. Mind you, this is just just after Christmas, and he looks down, my son looks at God's word, and then reads, Santa beard, Santa white. Santa beard, Santa white. He looks at me and says, that's in the Bible. So uh, all those good vibes were kind of out the window. I was very humbled as a father all of a sudden. But I left that night just, just smiling, and I, I loved my son just as much as, as before, and, and I still delighted in all his little quirks and the way he says, the Bible. But there was another part of me as a dad that was also thinking, someday he's going to figure out which one of us was right about what's in here. And I wonder if sometimes our Heavenly Father doesn't feel the same way about us. That, that he might look at us and, and still love us and still delight in us and at the same time go, you know, I don't know if you really know best the way you think you do. That's a little bit of the heart behind this series, Second Guessing Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're four or 84. There's something in us that wants to question voices of authority. And that can happen in our relationships and that definitely happens in our faith. And what's interesting and some comfort for us is that as we look in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that, man, from, from Jesus' first and closest followers to the fans and critics in the crowd to some of his fiercest opposition in the religious leaders of the day, everybody was questioning and challenging and second-guessing Jesus. And uh, our senior teaching pastor, Rick, and myself, we're going to be leading this series out over the next several weeks. And, and I believe that this is going to help so many of us in the questions we might have, whether you're a Christian or not. And by the way, if you're brand new, I'm so glad that you're with us. I don't think it's an accident that you've started streaming on a day when we're starting a brand new series. We're all at square one. And I think this will help you. But it's also going to help 
Everybody who, who is a follower of Jesus and a member of this church. We may not always doubt if Jesus exists, but we often wonder if he's right. And throughout this series, we're going to see that played out. So if you're at Mark 1, here we go. Jesus begins his ministry by having a few follow, gathering a few followers, and then he launches his public ministry on a Sabbath. That would kind of, you know, the Jewish equivalent of, of, of the, the, the church day, you know, Sunday, except that was Saturday for them, the Sabbath. And so in Mark 1.21, Jesus and his followers went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Now, Jesus is a rabbi. He is a teacher. And so this is where he begins his teaching ministry. And the people in Capernaum are amazed at his teaching. But even during the service, all of a sudden it's interrupted by someone who is, has been uh, oppressed by a demon. And Jesus frees this individual from demonic oppression, commanding the demon to leave. And the people are amazed, not only at Jesus' teaching, but his spiritual authority. And as a result, verse 28, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. It is just the morning of Jesus' first public ministry, and he is going viral. Well, by the end of this day, verse 32, 33, that evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. Listen to this. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. I mean, from, from the moment he gets up and then goes to the synagogue, the rest of the day, it is instant success for a new rabbi and healer. The whole town is knocking on his door. And, and finally, when Jesus goes to sleep, how does he bounce back from this huge, huge debut? He's been working late at night, but verse 35 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So, so let's just recap. One day of ministry, and Jesus has an entire town knocking on his door. The whole region is hearing his name, and it's an instant success in terms of getting people to pay attention. But then the next day, imagine this from the disciples' perspective. I mean, they're, they're brand new followers of Jesus. They see this ministry just blow up and, and they wake up the next day. Jesus is nowhere to be found. Maybe they don't panic at first, but all of a sudden, people are showing up at Simon's house asking for the rabbi and they don't have an answer. And you can imagine, man, more, more people start showing up and the same crowd from the night before is gathering around asking, where is Jesus? And these followers, man, they're, they're, they're embarrassed. They're like, what? Because they're supposed to be his followers. They don't even know where he is. And so they go head off and try and find him. And the language in the Greek of the Gospel of Mark is not that they just went looking for him. It's, it's like they go track him down. When they find him, they deliver the news that everybody's looking we can safely assume with the expectation Jesus is supposed to return to the crowd. Now, 
I know that when we read this in English, it, it may not, not all of this may translate. And, and I, I don't blame you if you're, you're hearing some of this for the first time and thinking, Taylor, aren't you kind of reading into this a little bit too much? Could we really call this moment second guessing Jesus? Well, as I was studying this text, in, uh, what's, in, what's, some, what's important to note is that in the original language, in the Gospel of Mark, that word, that phrase, looking for, that's used, that same language is used nine different times in this one gospel. And every single time, it is in a negative connotation or representing somebody who has wrong motives in their search. Nine different times, the same language is used. It's a clue from Mark to the original readers and for us. So what's happening here? What is the tension? Well, Jesus' ministry is a startup. This is brand new. And in the early days of any venture, it doesn't matter if it's, a, if it's a band, if it's a team, if it's a business, if it's a nonprofit, whatever it is, in the early days, the ventures that last are the ones that have clarity about who they are and what they're going to prioritize. And this moment, right after day one of Jesus' ministry, the question is, who gets to make that call? Who's going to direct what Jesus will be about and, and how he will define his ministry? So put broadly, if you're taking notes, the tension in this scene is between divine direction and crowd reaction. It's really what we're wrestling with here. Jesus goes off to pray and seek divine direction for his ministry. Meanwhile, the disciples show up and they want to announce the crowd's reaction because they think it matters. Now, I know that we're in church, and as soon as you put divine direction next to crowd reaction, there's a bunch of us that are like, well, I know where this sermon's headed. But for a second, can we at least acknowledge and, and, and really put ourselves in the disciples' shoes? Why do they care so much about what the crowd had to say and the fact that a new crowd is gathered? I mean, maybe, maybe the disciples saw this as an opportunity to, to kind of corner the, the, the faith healing market in Capernaum. Some of them may have been thinking, man, if we start charging a couple denarii just to get to see Jesus, we could get a decent cash flow for this ministry. Maybe, maybe some of them, you know, they really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. This was a title for the anointed one who would be a redeemer for Israel. And at the time, the nation of Israel was under Roman occupation. And so maybe their thought was, dude, we got we to gotta keep the crowd around because that, we, need, we need some backup whenever Jesus is going to storm into Jerusalem and kick the Romans out. We're, we're going to need some of this crowd to fight with us and be for us. Or maybe they just got overwhelmed by a group of desperate people asking for Jesus and they don't have answers and they head off panicked, embarrassed, and maybe a little frustrated. Whatever the case, this is the point that remains. A few days ago, they agreed to follow Jesus. And today, they're trying to tell him what to do. Does that sound familiar? Like you, you don't have to be a Christian long to start looking at how Jesus is, is living and, and uh, being authoritative over life and go, oh God, I'm not sure that that's the way to go. And two things can be true at the same time. The first truth is this. I believe that life is better with Jesus. If you're a Christian live on our campuses, can I get an amen? But truth number two, Jesus doesn't always do things my way. In fact, most of the time, he doesn't, and he does not ask me for a vote. Discipleship is living in that tension. 
and having to wrestle with, okay, God, is this, is this really what you want to do? And it can cause us, depending on what happens in our life or in the world, it can cause us to question, to second guess, to go, hold on, God, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I mean, how many of us got into last year and a few months into 2020 went, um, God, can we, can we get a do-over? Like, are, are, we, are you sure about this? We're in good company with the disciples. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see them a couple times. Man, one of the things I was convicted by looking at this passage was realizing that some of Jesus's closest followers are the quickest to play backseat quarterback with God. Like the, the, the closer we get, like the disciples, we may, we may find ourselves wanting to give God some tips on how he runs the world or how he runs our life or how he runs whatever's happening at work or at school or in our relationships. All it took was one day of public ministry for these disciples to, to go, oh, why don't you let us be management for this ministry? And it was all fueled by the reaction of the crowd. I, I, think, I think we can all agree, if there had been a sparse response in Capernaum, the disciples would have been like, yep, let's move on, not a lot of traction here. The reason that they're so frenetic and that they, they're trying to tell Jesus what to do is because of how the crowd reacted. And as much as I'd like to separate myself from the disciples and be like, man, I, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be so easily swayed by what a group thinks or decides, we are susceptible to the influence of the crowd too. And if you don't think you are, just, just look at what happens the next time that a, an alarm goes off when you're in a store. What do we all do? We freeze, kind of look around, and we're trying to figure out like, is this worth panicking over? Is this like just a drill? Is this like a kid tripped an alarm? Is something on fire? We're we're looking around to figure out, is it time to leave? That's what we do. But that human nature is not just when an emergency goes off. Author Mark Sayers notes that we naturally look to each other for opinion and reinforcement. Sayers writes that, listen close, today's society is, quote, a shift from the vertical authority of God to the horizontal authority of the crowd. In much of today, we look around and we're looking for what's trending. We're looking for what's popular in many cases because that helps us know what's important. Can I just be real with you? (laughs) There are shows I've watched because I heard what the crowd had to say about it. There are products I've bought because of how it was marketed to me and a few million other very unique individuals. There are things I've posted because it was trending with the crowd. And eventually, here's why I have to get honest with myself and we have to get honest with each other. Eventually, the crowd influences how I view the world, how I measure what matters or who is worth caring about, what is worth doing. The crowd's voice can get awfully loud, and in today's world, the crowd sometimes lives right in our pocket with our accessibility to all the voices online. But here's what Jesus knew. If if the crowd is your consistent reference point, you will lose all consistency. Look at the Gospels. Jesus is going to interact with crowds a lot. He's going to minister to them often. And depending on which page you turn to, 
the crowd might be, like in Capernaum, amazed and hungry for more of what Jesus has to say. Or the crowd might be trying to force Jesus to be their king and make him their political leader. Or the crowd might be disgusted with something Jesus has to say, and so they walk away in droves. Or the crowd might be all celebrating his entrance to Jerusalem because finally Messiah time has come. But then only about a week later, the crowd is crying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus understood the crowd is fickle. And if you live in reaction to the crowd, you will turn left, right, left, right all the time. Jesus prioritized the different voice. So when the disciples come saying, everyone is looking for you, Jesus responds, having heard from the only one whose voice really matters in his life. Like the, Jesus sees the disciples and the disciples come with all the urgent pressure of the crowd and Jesus answers with all the peace that was brought from his father's voice. And it's not just that this is about divine direction versus crowd reaction. It's also that there's something Jesus is in the middle of doing when the disciples interrupt and bring all the pressure from the crowd and the news from town. What's Jesus doing? He's off praying. The disciples, they, they come looking for Jesus and they find him praying. I heard a discipleship pastor named Ralph Castillo ask this great question about this scene. If our friends came looking for us, would they ever catch us praying? And this raises what is really another angle on the questioning and challenging from the disciples. They show up and they have no interest in what Jesus is up to. They want to let Jesus know what the, what the crowd is up to. They have no headspace to expect that Jesus has done anything productive in his time in prayer. Instead, they bring the urgent news of what Jesus needs to react to. In essence, the disciples' actions tell Jesus there are more pressing, practical, and important things for you to do right now than pray. There's things that are more pressing than prayer. You can pray later, Jesus, but there are people waiting now. Now's not the time to pray. There's more practical things to be doing because prayer, Jesus' prayer isn't changing anything back in Capernaum. You need to get back to what was working yesterday. There's more important things to do than pray because why are you off by yourself? I mean, the most important work you have right now is back in town. That's what all of their actions, all their energy is communicating. And we wrestle with these same questions about whether prayer really is so pressingly urgent, about if, is it practical at all? Is it that important? These are the things that we wrestle with as disciples, and so while we may, it may be easy to quickly say, when we're gonna try and pick divine direction over crowd reaction. If the rhythm of our lives is missing prayer, we will drift to the voices that are loudest because we haven't made time to be with the Father who speaks. We haven't tuned our ear to what the Spirit would say and in theory, I think many of us would say very quickly, hey, I know, I know prayer's important, but, but when the rubber meets the road, when theory meets practice, when the concept meets my calendar, is it lived out? Part of how Jesus models for his followers 
the importance of prayer. And two things I want to help us kind of glean from Jesus' example in his whole ministry, but even in this moment. And the first is this. Prayer is a daily invitation. It's a daily invitation to meet with God, to be with him, to let his voice have priority. I mean, here in this text, prayer is how Jesus starts his day. It's a regular part of his life and ministry. So much so that his, his disciples actually catch him praying multiple times. I mean, it, it happens in, uh, in Luke 11, for instance. There's this moment where Jesus is, Jesus is praying in a certain place at the beginning of Luke 11, and then, and then the disciples, they, they find him praying, and one of the disciples asks, Lord, teach us to pray. And it's in that setting that Jesus teaches them the Lord's prayer. And inside that prayer, also taught in Matthew 6, where Jesus says, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, what's that word? Today, our daily bread. Like, even inside the Lord's prayer, there's this implication. This is a daily experience for us. And it's interesting to me that the disciples did not ask Jesus how to lead. They saw Jesus teach a lot. They didn't ask Jesus how to teach. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They didn't ask Jesus how to do that. They asked Jesus, teach us to pray. I think in part because the more they were with him, the more they realized that his sense of security, his sense of self, his clarity about his calling was from the wellspring of prayer providing this connection, this wisdom, this love from the Father. And we need the same thing. And in the busiest times of my life, prayer is one of the first things to get cut from the calendar. So I'm preaching as one who's still growing in this. But you know what I've had to reckon with? It is really hard to follow someone that you don't spend time with. It's hard to nurture a relationship if you're not giving attention to it and to the person who's in it with you. Now, even as I say that, here's part of what I can feel. A topic like prayer inside of church, man, it can make, it can make a lot of us feel guilty. All we have to do is bring it up. And it's like, oh man, I know. I probably don't pray enough. I kind of feel, feel crummy right now listening to this sermon. Here's, here's what, what I think has, has been an encouragement for me. I wanna share with you the words of uh, author and speaker Beth Moore. If all we feel is guilt when we don't spend time with God, we probably misunderstand who loses. It's not God who is left lacking. She writes, it's not God whose day is altered. God is not needy. We are. And because we are needy, God invites us to meet him daily to be our daily bread through prayer, to be that stream of living water that never fails from within. But it's not only something that happens for each one of us individually, it's also that prayer is a powerful strategy for mission. The disciples are second-guessing Jesus about his mission, and yet what we learn very early is that Jesus' mission will be lived out from the foundation of prayer. His clarity of his calling will come from continued prayer and connection with the Father. 
Like this is a powerful strategy. And that's been true not only for Jesus, not only eventually for the apostles, you see in the book of Acts, a number of times they gather and pray when they're facing the hardest opposition. But it's been true for generations and it's still true today. I have to be careful about what I say next, um, in part because this is being streamed and this is going online. So I, I, I talked with a friend this week. Um, for his safety, I'm not gonna tell you his name. Uh, we're just gonna call him John. John serves as a missionary in a predominantly Muslim nation. Where John lives, it is illegal to evangelize. It's illegal to try and lead people to faith in Christ. John, to put it bluntly, John is a church planter in a country where it's illegal to plant churches. And he shared with me that when he first arrived at this particular mission field, that his first instinct was to try and just gain as much information as possible through conversation with different people. He, he sat down and he, he talked with locals. He talked with other missionary teams who'd worked in the area. He, he talked with regional experts who could give cultural insight. He talked to all these different kinds of people. And then in a time of prayer, John heard the Holy Spirit say, why didn't you ask me? I know this country better than anyone. Why didn't you ask me? And in humility, John and his team then began to pray. Because prayer really is not meant to be a speech, it's meant to be a conversation in which we lean in and, and listen for what God wants to say, how God wants to direct us. And through divine direction, they have built a strategy that is founded on prayer. Because for once, John found himself in a setting where all of the other normal missionary methods and ministry methods and church planning methods don't work. You can't do a building. You can't do public outreach. You, you, you can't gather a crowd. It, it's not working in that setting. It will immediately be snuffed out. And so they've had to find some kind of hidden mustard seed kind of approach that says we're going to trust that beginning from a place of prayer, God is going to grow this and do more than what we could ever do with our human methods. And what's amazing is that in the midst of that, even believing that, John confessed to me this week, he's like, yeah, but I, I still feel crazy about this. Like that this is, this is so different than anything else I've ever done. He, he said, I feel foolish walking the streets praying. And that's exactly where he's meant to be. That feeling foolish has not diminished his faith because he begins, he and his team are beginning to see God answer those prayers. Even got a, an update this week that there were, there were nearly two dozen different people who were reaching out from inside the city asking for a copy of God's word, wanting to know more about Jesus, and even one of them that is expressing a desire to become a follower of Jesus. Prayer is the strategy, and it's working. And it makes me think about 1 John 5, 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's been said that nothing lies beyond the reach of prayer except that which lies outside the will of God. But John knows, we know, Jesus wants people to be saved. And scripture paints a picture that someday in eternity, every tribe and every tongue will be represented around the throne which means when we pray for people to be saved in the places where my friend John is, we know we're praying according to God's will. We know he hears us.
So when we look at this moment for Jesus and see it in this context, we see the tension of divine direction and crowd reaction. We see the fact that the the disciples are wrestling with the impractical nature of prayer. And we see what's at stake for his ministry and for what he's going to pass on to them. Listen close. Jesus would maintain a rhythm of prayer because it kept him connected with the Father and committed to his mission. And prayer does the same for us. Man, for, for a prayerless people or a prayerless season, it's no wonder that we feel disconnected from God. And it's no wonder that we struggle to stay, to stay committed to following his way instead of ours. Connection and commitment are two sides of the same coin and it's met in the moment of prayer with God the Father. Prayer with Jesus, our Savior. Prayer with the Holy Spirit who speaks back to us. And throughout Jesus' ministry, you know, it's interesting, Matthew and Luke, these two gospels, they have Jesus praying a ton of places. He's teaching about prayer several places. He's encouraging others to pray several places. But in the gospel of Mark, there's only three places where Jesus is recorded praying. One of them is right here after this opening day. The second is in Mark 6, which was another demanding and pivotal day in ministry. And the last time is the night before Jesus goes to the cross. In Mark, Jesus' most stressful and difficult times are marked by prayer. They stand at the beginning and the middle and the end of Mark's gospel and Jesus' earthly ministry. So in light of that, maybe for some of us who maybe we need to be revived and refreshed in a journey of prayer, or maybe we need to take steps towards praying to God for maybe the very first time. Here's a simple prayer we can start with, looking at how Jesus went from the beginning to the end of his ministry in prayer. God, make prayer my first response and last resort. God, make prayer the first thing that I go to, to to seek you, to understand what you want from my life, to listen to your voice, but also, God, help me that even in the bleakest moments, I continue to turn to you no matter what. Make prayer my first response and my last resort and the daily invitation. I uh, I saw a sermon recently that was a great example of this. It was preached by Dr. E.K. Bailey. Maybe some of you know that name. He's a the founding and famous pastor of Concord Church over in Dallas. And uh, maybe those of you who, who were at uh, one of our last men's conferences may have, got, you, got, you got the pleasure of hearing Pastor Brian Carter, who was his successor in ministry. But before Dr. Paley uh, p- passed the, the preaching baton to Brian Carter, he was battling cancer, three different bouts. And... Uh, on one particular Sunday, he had to get up and announce to this church he had helped to found that had been one of the fastest growing churches in the nation. He, he was having to tell them that he was going to take a leave of absence and did not know if he would ever be back in the pulpit. And on that day, Dr. Bailey preached a little bit about how the allure of the crowd and being a preacher in front of so many or in, in important settings was really fading for him and how prayer and connection with God was his bedrock. And rather than just tell you about it, I want you to hear Dr. Bailey because he is a fire preacher. Listen to this. I believe God is going to see me through this 
cancer in this crisis. But I also believe that he did this for me and for you. Because God has allowed me to experience some heavenly things since I've been on earth. And I won't call the role of the great things God has allowed me to experience and have my name this place and that place and the kind of places I've preached in and the people I've shaken hands with. But now he's put something in my body to make me realize that it's not about me. It's not about the people I know. Because all of the big folk I know, they can't help me now. Not even the doctors that I know can help me now. If God doesn't show up, times will change. People come and people go. But the Bible says Jesus, <laughs> the same. Yesterday, today, and forevermore. Don't you put your hope in no man. Not even a preacher or pastor. Put your hope in Jesus. Oh, man, he's going off. A little bit after that, Dr. Bailey did lose his battle to cancer. But he never lost his battle with doubt. That in the face of the diagnosis, in a place where he realized, man, the, the, the crowd is going to come and go. Its influence and its approval will never last. Put your hope in Jesus. And prayer recenters us in that hope, turns down the noise of the crowd, and reminds us where can we really find salvation, deliverance, freedom, strength. Oh, it's all met by our Heavenly Father sending His Son to save us, to redeem us, and His Holy Spirit here with us, even to help us pray in the times where we don't know what to pray. And so in light of that, would you, would you bow with me and let's, let's go to God in prayer. God, thank you for the gift of prayer. Lord, you have allowed us to draw near to you, told us that you want us to ask, you want us to bring the things we care about, the things we're worried about, the things we're frustrated about, and to share them with you. But Lord, you've also promised that you will continue to lead us and be with us and not forsake us. So give us ears to hear in the times that we pray, not just to, not just to talk to you, but to listen. And remind us that prayer should be our first response and priority, our constant conversation with you, and our last resort no matter what comes. Lead us in this, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.